great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Just for the sake of our visitors, this is, I think, the 20th or the 21st session in a series on the theme of Passover that we've been engaging in. And what we've been doing, we've been tracking the theme of Passover biblically from the initial Passover in Exodus right into the New Testament, and we are in the New Testament at the moment, we're busy examining how that Jesus, in three and a half years of ministry, attended at least four Passovers. Uh, This is the third one recorded that we have him attending. And uh, just to paint the context, I won't read the scriptures again, uh, because we've read this account over and over in the past few weeks. Uh, The time of the Passover was near, John 6 says. Passover was near. Now remember what Passover signifies. Passover, the original Passover signaled an exodus out from inaccuracy, out from limitation, out from an inaccurate spiritual location. So we're leaving that place of bondage, restricture, that environment that stifles the development of sonship. Remember Moses' words to Pharaoh, let my son go. Emphasis on sonship. Let my, let Israel, my son go, my firstborn son go. So those words issued to Pharaoh indicate to us what God was attempting to extract from that environment. So what was God wanting to bring to the fore? Everyone say sonship. So let my son go for as long as he is enslaved, he, you will never know true sonship. And there's a realm that many Christians live in that keep them enslaved to elementary principles of this word, of this world, and they never ever come into a place of manifest, not just sonship, but firstborn status in God. I know the eternal son, the eternal Logos, Jesus Christ, the patent son, he is the firstborn, the only begotten of God the Father. But in him, the scriptures clearly teach all other sons of God in the same order or in the same status as he is, we too are firstborn sons of God. And so every time I read Passover in the scripture, I always read it through prophetic lenses as, what, if, what is God attempting to extract from me to bring to the fore the fullness of my identity in him? Okay, at this particular Passover in John 6, uh, there were 5,000 men present, not counting women and children. A great need arose. People were hungry. Jesus called Philip, and he asked Philip the question, how can we feed such a great multitude? The Bible says clearly, this he said to Philip to what? To, come on, say to, to test him. This was Philip's test. The scripture says, for he himself already knew what he was intending to do. Every time we face tests from God, God always has a solution in mind prior to offering you the test. His intent is to lead you into a methodology or mindset of how he, in his sovereign grace, will bring resolution to the problem not dependent upon human capacity. Philip failed the test initially because his initial, almost reflexive response is, 
200 denarii is not enough to feed such a multitude. So there was the leaning upon the arm of flesh to resolve a matter that was beyond human capacity to solve. Okay, beyond human capacity to solve. And you know the story. Long story short, Andrew, another disciple, brings a lad who had five loaves and, and two fish. The moment that resource leaves the lad's hands, the possibility attendant with multiplication of the resource is realized when it's given into the hands of the master. Right? So I, I taught you this, that that bread and fish would multiply. Not so. It would be more than adequate to feed in excess of 10,000 people because there were 5,000 men not counting, women and children. So if we do the maths, in excess of 10,000 people must have been present. And the Bible says they all had, they were all fed. And Jesus said, listen carefully, he said, collect the fact that the fragments, so that none be left over. And in Luke's account, he says this, for in the last day, I will raise it up again. It's prophetic. You're speaking way beyond the, 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 the contemporary time period in which he lived. He was not just being a good citizen. He was not just wanting not there to be any wastage. He was making a point. How many baskets were left over? Come on. Twelve. What is the number twelve depictive of? The apostolic spirit. Right? He was saying, and what is the last day? The last day, biblically, is a point in human history that started with the ministry of Jesus, uh, according to Hebrews 1.3, but was actualized on the day of Pentecost, where Peter stood up and he said, we're not drunk as you suppose, but well did Joel prophesy that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So Peter described the time period in which he was alive as Last days. What did Jesus say? I'm going to raise it up. Raise what up? Bread. Notice not fish. There were not fragments of fish left over. But there were fragments of bread left over. Twelve bread baskets remained. What he was saying. What is bread depictive of? Come on, talk to me. The, the word of God. Every time the word is communicated, what comes to you? Grace. Right? Grace. The container of grace is in the, the Word of God. What he was saying prophetically is that in a season in human history called last days, this bread, depictive of, of the Word that I am, I will continue to distribute and administrate through an apostolic principle containing resident in the twelve, the five. Because there were five? Remember five loaves? Remember? So the five loaves are depicted symbolically in the 12 bread baskets that remain. So in that apostolic principle of 12, fivefold ministry is depicted that are designed to build up the body, to edify the church, to the building of, of itself in love, for the equipping of saints for the work of the, of the ministry. Okay? And th there's much in that. The disciples get into a boat immediately afterwards. They get into a lake. They row, sweating with human perspiration. They arrive in the middle of the lake. A storm ensues. Jesus, not having went with them, comes walking on the, 
water. They think they see a ghost, right? Um, and the Bible says, he says, do not fear, it is, it is me. And the Bible says when they knew who it was, they were willing and eager for him to, jump, to get into the boat. Amazingly, the scripture says, as soon as he got in the boat, immediately they were on the other side. So without rowing the balance of the way, the presence of grace, the presence of word in the life of your boat, your experience, will accelerate a process in God with very little human effort on your part. It's either grace or it's works. Not so? It's either grace or it's works. So the, 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 the scriptures are at pains to stress, to stress. 20 or 30 furlongs they rode, middle of the lake. Jesus gets in, next verse, and immediately they were on the other side. Now, who needs an immediately experience? <laughs> I certainly do. I'm saying, you know, there are certain things that can be accomplished in God as the result of the embodiment of grace. Because remember what Jesus represents. Is he the word? Come on. Is he the word made flesh? Right? John says the word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt amongst us and we did what? We looked. We are, whenever word becomes flesh, it warrants observation. It recruits attention. So when that word becomes flesh, John says, we beheld his glory. So glory is only put on display in the process of obedience. When word takes on flesh... You see, this, this word, however you keep your Bible, digitally or, or you're still living in another era, <laughs> okay, <laughs> whichever, right? This word has got to become the person. The greatest thing in the kingdom of God is to become the principle, is to become the epistle, known and read of, of all men. You see what Jesus was trying to demonstrate to the group. Because when he got to the other side, the people whom he fed, the 10,000 plus, followed him. Right? And they said, we knew you did not leave with your disciples. How soon is it that you got onto the other side of the lake?" His response to them is this. You do not follow me because you see, you saw the sign. You are following me for what? For bread and fish. I explained this to you a few weeks ago. The Greek word for sign means this. It denotes not so much for what is true in and of itself, but rather for what greater thing it points or indicates. Like all signs do. 100K is to Joburg, you're driving. The sign is not the destination. The sign indicates a greater reality, not so. So when Jesus said to them, you, you are not following me because you saw the sign. What are you saying? The bread and fish, the, the, the feeding of that, the multitude was a sign indicating a greater reality of things. But you people did not see that. You are only following me for natural bread and fish. You're following me to get your physical needs satisfied. But you failed to see the intent of the miracle. You have failed to see the greater reality. So they said to him, show us a sign, they said. So Jesus starts a very long discourse with them. John 6 is 71 verses. Eh? 
he starts this long uh, discourse and he says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What's manna? What is manna? Well, we think it's bread. (laughs) When the Bible first uses the word manna, it clearly indicates they called it manna because they did not know what it was. In fact, the word manna means two things. I'll talk more about this in the year. It's going to be one of our focus areas. It means what is it? The word manna literally means what is it? What they're literally saying, we're calling something we don't know what we are saying. But you know, if you have a New American Standard Bible, in the marginal rendering of where manna first occurs in the book of Exodus, you will find this, it says, also secondary meaning, meaning who is it? It's not just what is it, it's who is it? When Jesus multiplied the bread, because in his discourse with the people, he draws a comparison between what he did and how God provided manna for their fathers in the in the desert. Well, did they said Mo, they said Moses gave us manna. Jesus said, No, not Moses, my father gave you manna. Moses was simply the conduit. My father gave you manna. They ate in the wilderness and they died. But then he says this, but I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. If any man eats of me, he will have eternal or everlasting life. So I taught you this. The sign indicated a greater reality. The bread was only symbolic of the bread of of heaven. Whenever God does something, It must always lead you to an understanding of his person. The works of God must always manifest the person of God. The miracles of God must lead you to a deeper understanding of his personhood. The performance of God must reveal the person of God. The works of God must highlight the word of God. If you stop at what God does, listen carefully because what he does Purely signs indicating something more profound attendant with his nature. If you miss the bigger picture, you will stop at what he does without penetrating deeper to learn the lesson as to what is he trying to reveal to me about himself in this breakthrough. Otherwise, if you simply focus and you get so mesmerized, I mean, which of us here do not get happy when God breaks through? Not so. I get enthralled. This one, you must see, goes off the, over the top. It's excited. Not, we all do. I mean, I mean if, if you're in the vortex of a particular problem and God suddenly provides an answer, you get happy, not so? I want to encourage you, in your ecstasy, look deeper. Don't get so simply um, fixated by what God did and you miss the attendant lesson. Right? Because then you'll be living for the next breakthrough. And you'll be living from breakthrough to breakthrough. Not not having your mind scarred with an assurance of knowledge about the fact of his person as father. That will always take care for you irrespective. Right? You know, I won't have time to read it. But Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a powerful, one of the most powerful passages. 
Deuteronomy 8, if you want to read 8, 9, 10, 11. Very powerful uh, chapters to meditate upon. And you know, the, the famous one is verse 18 where it says, You will remember the Lord your God for He gives you, it is He who gives you the, the power to, to get wealth, that He might establish His, His covenant, not so. But in the build up to that, God says, Beware lest you forget the Lord your God. And when you come into houses that you've never built, vineyards that you've never planted, and you come into this, this abundance, God says, beware that you've, lest you forget the Lord your God by disobeying His commandments. When is God forgotten? When do you forget God? Biblically, God is forgotten every time His principles are not adhered to. The act of disobedience is an act of forgetting God, publicly, right? So you know what? Because there's a subtle deception in when God provides, you get so fixated by what He did that you neglect fundamental principles. That is why for many people, the point of their breakthrough becomes the start of their breakdown. People who won the lotto, they come luto afterwards. Right. You see, God is more concerned with the development of your character than, than blessing you with things. Many people are not ruling and administrating a particular domain or, or, or sphere that God has allotted for you simply because you have not developed the sufficient character necessary to uphold all that God desires for you to do. God is a good father. Not so? Will I give my keys to Raina and says, please drive us home? Will I do that? No, she has not developed sufficient character, skill, or road sense to do that. A good father will withhold the gift until there's development of a specific skill set or character in the person. And then the bestowal of the gift becomes easy. Not so? Same with us. Not so same with us. So I want to encourage you, and we ended last week by saying this. I quoted Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I haven't got to the message yet. I'm trying to get there. Just, just bear with me, okay? Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. Just put it up quickly. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. I said to you, I feel in my spirit that we are about to, to enter a, a phase of the miraculous, not for wanting it, in and of itself. But we're going to administrate it for what it's going to highlight about the nature of our God. There's a bigger picture to it. I think the flow of the miraculous on a vast scale from heaven's perspective is being withheld because people don't understand the reason for signs, wonders, and, and miracles. Okay? John only records seven miracles in his whole gospel. He's not like the other gospel writers. John is very particular about the miracles that he records. And it would be a good study for you to study the seven specific, and John calls them not just miracles, specifically calls them signs. Each sign, if you, if you do your study, was designed to highlight a particular aspect about the nature of God. If you get so mesmerized by the sign, that you fail to see what God was intending behind it, you will miss the point. So listen carefully. 
Who, who loves the miraculous? I mean, I do. Not so? I mean, we are kingdom people, not so. This is our life. This is normal. The supernatural must become thoroughly normal. Amen? In fact, it must be highly abnormal where we don't see supernatural things in our lives. Amen? And so I want to encourage you. Tell your neighbor, expect the miraculous. I want to emphasize what we did. What we, and you know, we're experiencing this in very small, minute expressions within our family. And certain things we can't explain, yet God is doing them. I can only put it down to the fact that God is faithful to His Word. Right? But after you've celebrated, and after you are deeply enthralled and happy, calm your mind. Have a meditative time and say, Now God, what is the greater lesson? that you desire to teach me through this? What of your personhood do I need to focus upon? Okay? Remember after he raised Lazarus from the dead, or even before that, what did he say to Mary or to Martha? I am what? I am the resurrection. I'm doing a resurrection now before your eyes to depict a greater reality as to my personhood. Heal the blind man in John 9. What did he say? I am the light of the the world. Seven I am statements in the book of John. I want to encourage you. Every sign is intended to reveal an I am of God. When Abraham um, realized that God provided a ram before he was about to kill Isaac with a knife. Remember? Right? So, question. Did God provide? Yes or no? But what did he exclaim immediately after that? What did he say about God? What aspect about God was disclosed to that patriarch? What did he say? Jehovah, Jireh. No other human being prior to that point, in, in, to, to nobody else was it ever disclosed that aspect about God as provider in the way in which it was disclosed to Abraham. So Abraham took what God did to unveil to him who God is. Right? Because that revelation was also given to his son, Isaac, who heard and saw everything as a boy. Right? And Isaac never had a singular provision problem in his whole life from that point onwards. Why? Because, let me just say this, when you come into a revelation of the person of God, the performance of God is your natural result. But if you keep focusing on the performance without understanding the person, Right? You, you cut the process short. So what does it say about Israel? Israel knew God's? Come on, I want to stress this. Israel knew God's works, but Moses knew God's ways. The works of God must always disclose the ways of God. I know this is repetitious for some of you, but I need, if we are going to enter this phase of the miraculous, then we, we are saying to God, Lord, bring it on because... We'll not be so distracted too much by what you do that we don't learn the greater lesson. So your works will always lead us to your, to your ways. Amen. And uh, I want to encourage you. It says, for example, in Romans 1 verse 3 and 4, concerning his son was born of, the, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Jesus was the son of man and the son of God. In terms of his son of manness, a descendant of David. You can trace his lineage back to David in the flesh. From a human perspective, 
son of man. But he was declared what? Son of God declared this, this man, this human, was declared to be the son of God with? Now you want to say power. power. Say it like you mean power. Power. power right? Dunamis here. He was declared the son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Question. Is the resurrection from the dead a supernatural act? Is it a miracle? Is it a wonder? Yes, most certainly. Now, God declared him to be the son by an act, not by a verbal pronouncement. I told you last week there were two prior incidences where God the Father said, This is my beloved son in whom I am. Well, please, at the baptism, when John baptized him, the Father said, This is my son in whom I am. Well, pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John in the Holy Mount, what a voice came out and said, This is my son, hear him. This is my son, hear him. Here's a third declaration. Everyone say declaration. The Bible is very specific. It uses this word declaration, but it's not verbal. It's, an, it's actual. And I said to you, now please, I want to encourage you. Some of you need to hear the same thing three times before it settles. Hear this as a prophetic word for your life, Lisa. Corrine, Marion, Sean, and Lynn, your boys, your family back home. The, God will say certain things about you, not saying it. But He's going to do certain supernatural resurrective acts. That validate who you are in him. God says, he's my son. How do I declare it? I declare it by raising him from the dead. Not a verbal pronouncement, but a resurrective act. Breaking the power of death that holds something latent, inactive, dormant. So all those latent, inactive, dormant things in your life, on a decree over you, God's wanting to come Wanting them to come to the, to the fore. And the Bible says this. He raised him from the dead according to what? The spirit of holiness. Um, I don't know, but I think this is the only time in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is described in this manner. As a spirit of holiness. Yes, he is the Holy Spirit. So it's implied every time you read that. But yes, specifically I like the phrasing. The spirit of holiness. So I want, and holy simply means different, distinct, set apart, right? Sanctified, set apart for holy use. So God's going to declare sonship over this house. God's going to silence those that undermine who you are and what you are called to do. God will vindicate and justify not with words from heaven. Now by what God does, God will settle once and for all who you are in, in Him. Okay? And um, I want to go into the rest of the scripture. Um, but your role and function is about to change. Okay? And you're about to elevate to managing and operating differently in the kingdom of God than what has transpired previously. So I want to encourage you, expect change. Tell someone, expect change. 
Expect the change. Expect the change. The resurrection from the dead was God's final vindication of God as His Son. He declared it verbally in times past, but now He raises Him from the dead and no argument against that. Um, I think it was uh, a, man, a man of God said last year some or two years ago, a man with a testimony is not at the mercy of a man who has an argument. You can argue all you want to theologically, but if you have fruit in your life, no one can argue with your personal fruit. Right? So if you have a personal testimony, so God's going to do things, and by what He does, it will speak on your behalf and silence every argument raised up against you. Okay? So I want you to, I want you to grab that and hold that within your heart. Now, quickly. Go to John chapter 1 and verse 43. I want to focus this briefly and see how this develops and how we go with time. I was, for a brief time in my personal study of John chapter 6, taken aback by the personalities of Philip and Andrew. These two disciples are key in this particular account of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, it was Philip's test. Jesus drew Philip into knowing what he was about to do. Before he just willy-nilly goes ahead and multiplies bread and fish, calls one of his disciples, and he tweaks his mind. What do you think about this scenario, about this problem? What is your view, Philip? And so I was intrigued by Philip. And remember I said to you, Philip means lover of horses. His name also means warrior. Right? In a negative sense, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will remember or trust the name of the Lord. Remember we taught you that Father is the most comprehensive name of the Godhead, of, of God, Father. Right? So, his tendency was 200 denarii, if we had it, money is not even enough to satisfy this. But I like the fact that Jesus draws him in. Every good teacher will use a potential problem and draw the learner in to teach them valuable lessons. Right? And as Jesus demonstrates this very, very powerfully. Philip, I want to read this to you. Because I want to speak about Philip and Andrew being... Kingdom connectors. Everyone say kingdom connectors. Right? Now, here's a scenario. The next day, is this in NASB? The following day, I'll read it from the screen. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. This is how Philip came to know Christ. This intrigued me. Right? And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Seems that there were acquaintances. Philip found who? Nathaniel. Just go back a few verses again. Go back one verse. Go back another verse. He, Jesus, Found Philip. Go two verses down. 
I like this interplay of words. Then it says, Philip found Nathaniel. Tell your neighbor, God found you for a reason. <laughs> you know, it just appealed to me this, that, you see, don't, sometimes we read narratives in the scripture. You know, like I always have this negative view of Peter in the scripture. But hey, the man was chosen by Christ out of many others. And which of us would dare do the things this guy did? Walk on water and all. Hey? And sometimes when you read the feeding of the 5,000, you can say, ah, Philip, you failed the test of the master. Right? We all fail. Okay? There's a potential to fail in every single one of us. The Bible says, any man, if he thinks he's strong, must beware lest he falls. Our strength is not in our own self. Our strength is in God. So we walk humbly. We walk certainly. We walk with, I'm a champion. Yes, we make these I'm strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. But within us, there's a humility we recognize. It's only by grace that we, we stand and by grace alone. Okay? So Philip finds Nathaniel. Okay? And he says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a place of ill repute. You know this, right? Disrepute. Context doesn't shape you. Environment doesn't determine your identity nor your destiny. If you access God, you can rise above your present state. Amen? It's all about grace. It's not about context. Jesus, I like the Christmas story. Where did the eternal son, the Logos, the creator of all things. He chose to reveal himself, not in flashy uh, uh, kingly palaces, but he came in conspicuous, con conspicuously, not in midday, at night, everyone sleeping. He came and he positioned himself in a manger. Okay? But all great things are born in obscurity. Amen? But tell your neighbor you are a great thing. Amen? Right? So, I mean, Philip... Or rather, Nathaniel can't wrap his mind around this. That what you say, Moses, I know what, he obviously knew the law, because the law is referenced here. This guy is coming from that place. How can such grandeur issue forth from such uh, a, a place of, of disrepute? Right? Philip said to him, I'm not going to argue this one. Notice what he says. Argument here will not cut it. All you need to do is to come and physically inspect him and see him for yourself. Right? And you know, this is where I'm at. Again, I'm, please track my thoughts. You are the sun. Baptism. You are the sun. Mount of Transfiguration. When he raised him from the dead, the Bible says he declared him to be the sun, not by words, but by action. Philip is at a loss. He knows Nathaniel's mind, obviously. He says, Nathaniel, I can't argue this one. You need to come and see. Tell your neighbor, come and see. Come and see. I'll talk more about this in a moment. Okay? Let me read the account. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, so Nathaniel's still walking towards Christ. And Jesus says to him, Behold, a, an Israelite, 
indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus appraised his character instantly. He says, this guy got no hypocrisy, no lies, no deceit, no duplicity. And he says to him, behold, you are an Israelite. King James says, in which there's no guile. Right? There's no guile. It's gone. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Right? I saw you. Go on. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, teacher, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. Philip is one of the few, even apostles, that had a revelation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God upon their first meeting. Remember Peter in, was it Matthew 16? Who do men say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the flesh and blood. Yeah, this guy, first encounter, you. I can see you are God's son, right? You are God's son. You are the king of, you are the king of Israel. Okay, next verse. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Next. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of of Man. Now, what I want to challenge the church with is this. Um, I won't go into detail about Andrew. You know, who did Andrew bring to the Lord? Who did Andrew introduce to Christ? His brother Peter. If you know your, your, your Bible, Andrew was a disciple of John. Early in the, in, the, in the account of John, the Bible says John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, Andrew and another one. Right? John said to them, pointing to Christ, Behold the Lamb of God. And the Bible says clearly, Andrew and the other disciple left John to follow to follow Christ. Once they started following Christ, the Bible says Andrew went looking for his brother Peter. Right? Looking for his brother Peter and very similarly introduces Peter to Christ. Jesus says to Peter, leave all you have, follow me. And the Bible says Peter dropped his nets. A loud drop. If I was making a movie about this, out of slow motion, I leave a prior occupation. I dropped his nets, and he simply starts. Is Peter a significant disciple? Apostle, yes. He plays a significant role um, in the Gospels, even in the, in the account in the book of Acts. So, my point being, there is what I call this fourth disciple. His name is Andrew. Because in the listing of the 12 apostles, whenever they are listed in the New Testament, Andrew's name always appears fourth. They are the three Peter, James, and John, which were the closest to God. But Andrew was always placed fourth. He occupies a very close uh, place in his relationship to Christ because like the three were privy to some hearings or sayings of Christ and some doings of Christ that the other nine didn't. In certain instances and occasions, Andrew was present with the three on certain occasions 
when they witness some things that the others did not. My point being, you, you never know who you are introducing to Christ. You never know who you are connecting. You never know who you are bringing. Because Peter would play a central role in leading even the early church. Who was the spokesperson on the day of Pentecost? Peter stood up and said, he was a spokesperson on behalf of the other 11. Because the Bible says Peter stood up with the 11. So he became the mouthpiece of the voice of the 12. But you know who are the connectors are going to be in large respect, I believe. You. You're going to be the Phillips that get the Nathaniels. By the way, Nathaniel became part of the 12, I believe. There's a lot of uh, theory around this. He's reported to be the Bartholomew of the 12. Right? This, this Nathaniel would be. But let me encourage you, church. The people that you are going to connect have already been seen by the Lord. What did he say? Before Philip called you, I saw you. There are people that he has seen now and is already positioned and prepared their hearts. All he's waiting for is for personnel to make the link and for a connection to, to take place. I'm here to say prophetically to the house, there are persons already prepared. There are persons already earmarked. God has sufficiently prepared them. There are people with no deceit. There are people with no guile. There are people of a kin spirit to us. There are people of kingdom caliber that God's going to bring into our sphere, not for the sake of church growth, for the sake of accomplishing kingdom purpose. For these, these individuals, players in the extension of God's purposes globally. Let me just say this while I'm saying, neighbor, you are such a one. You are such a one. Right? You are such a one. I believe everybody here is key. I say this seriously over you, church. Your, your, your presence here is not coincidental. You did not just happen to come to this house. Your placement here is of the Lord. He set some in the church as it has pleased Him. And I want to encourage you that... Now, listen carefully. Here's the challenge, though. You will not need much persuasion. You will say to them, come and see a representation of the Christ in your invitation. Come and see a representation of the corporate Christ. The corporate man. Christ in the earth today. The body of Christ. And even if their retort will be, but can any good thing come from that group? But can any good thing come... Because some of them know you are here. <laughs> and they oh, but that person is there. But this person is here. I want to encourage you, don't argue. You must be confident, confident enough to say, come and see. The greatest testimony, the greatest allurement, if you would, the greatest carrot, the greatest invitation to anybody is, is, is not persuasive words. It's a transformed life. A transformed life is the greatest testimony. See where my marriage was headed and look at us now. 
see where my finances were headed, and see how by engagement with principles, see how are we now. See how my, my destiny was messed up. But look at my life now. Paul said this to the Corinthians. You are, he said to them, we don't need letters from you, um, as letters of commendation from you. We don't commend ourselves um, from a letter, he says. And he says this, for you are our letter, known and read of all men. And he says this, but manifested as the letter of Christ. He says, you are our letter, but visibly portrayed as the letter of, of Christ. So listen carefully. Everyone say, come and see. I want to end off with this. Go to 1 Kings chapter 10. Come and see. Now you know, if you're going to say, come and see, then they must come and see. There must be something to see. If we invite people presently to the house, what have we got to show? Um, what is it that will keep people? I want to say this, it's going to be the representation of Christ in a life manifested by obedience. The power of a transformed life in God will be the greatest um, thing we can hold to the world. See, the world is looking for solutions to multiplicity of problems. And the solutions they seek are things we celebrate as normal, or at least it should be the case, right? But let me just say this. We must be bold and confident and say to people, come and see. Come and see how, not our music. Don't come and hear our music. Don't come and hear how we preach. Don't come into a nice venue like this. Come and see lives that have been transformed. Right? Settle arguments. Come and see how people are maturing from, from babyhood in Christ to maturity in Christ, from Nepios to you, we are sons in Christ. Come and behold those things. But then, for you to say that, you must exhibit. Not so? Now the requirement is, you know, it's always bad when somebody overrates something, let's say. They overpaint the picture. And then you come to inspect, and you're, oh. And then you're, like, you're disappointed. Why? Because it was overrated based upon its, its actual depiction. The opposite is true, though. If someone underrates something, and if you come and say, why? You didn't tell me half the things. Right? I always want to, I want to encourage you, the church. Let us be so right and so accurate in God. That when people come in, they say, wow. Right? The power of a changed lifestyle is more persuasive than eloquent words. The power of a transformed life. Amen. Now, how many of your lives have been transformed by the message? I'm very pleased to end the year off in the manner in which we're doing. This year has been difficult on so many fronts. But I can see in many of your lives transformation. Right? This is one of the, uh, one of the few years. There has been many before. Uh, but one of the years in which I will lift my hands to say to God, I can see your word works. I can see evidence, fruit. Tell your neighbor, have some fruit. Right? Have some fruit. Right? I can see the evidence. And I'm saying this not because we are a spiritual family. I'm not saying this biasedly. I think I speak objective. I think I can see clear evidence of transformation 
of levels of obedience that we've not even seen a few months before. God's word is powerful. It can transform and change people's lives. Amen? So I want to encourage you. Ask your neighbor, have you seen in me? Just ask him that. Have you seen in me? Because if we say come and see, we must show them something. Right? But this is the life that has been transformed. Come and see. Now let me challenge you. I wish the whole church was here, but in any case, I want to challenge those of you that have come today. Don't relent now. Don't shrink back now. Don't, the sad, one of the pains of leadership is you deal with one issue and it resolves and another person manifests somewhere. And you're never at a place where you stand back and you say corporately, wow, look at what the Lord has done. I'm saying that season is over. Now they must have a corporate thrust, a corporate forward movement, a corporate momentum. Amen? Do you believe we are capable of this? Amen? I want to encourage you, this is possible. Maintain the consistency. Maintain the obedience. Don't shrink back. Don't turn back in the day of battle. All right? So I want to encourage you. Let's just read this account, and I think it speaks, I think it speaks for, for itself. I want to, before we read it, I can't get this out of my spirit as I look at you. I want to encourage you. The people do not be afraid to invite. I'm not talking about inviting people to church. That's not it. I'm not talking about invitations to come to a meeting. I'm talking about you're telling people, come and see a representation of of such accuracy in God. That that alone, the the supernatural transform life is going to declare or speak something to you of a greater reality This will be a sign of a greater reality concerning who our God is. There are frequent references to Zion in the book of Psalms. One of them says, come and behold Zion. Inspect her ramparts. Mark her bulwarks. uh, Do a thorough assessment, a forensic inquiry of this church, this end time church called Zion. And the psalmist says, God is in the midst of her. And the Bible says, this is our God. In other words, the representation of the church depicts who our God is. Do you know you are the university of the Godhead? People come to study you to get a picture of who God is. So give the right picture. <laughs> you are the visibilization of the internal Godhead. If people are struggling with forgiveness, let's say, they must come, you must be bold, say, Come and see how I handle issues of hurt, of betrayal. See how I forgive and copy me because my life is thoroughly reflective of Christ in this matter. Amen. So tell someone, come and see. Come and see. Come and see. I like Philip's attitude. He said, Nathaniel, I'm not going to argue with you. One more statement. You need to come and physically inspect the man himself. Right? And those people God has prepared already. Let's just read this account very quickly from verse 1 to 13. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she heard something, but she comes to do the test, the analysis. 
And so she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices, very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. Remember, Solomon was endowed with the gift of wisdom right, and understanding. When the queen of Sheba uh, perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, watch, what did she note? His wisdom. What did she note? The house that he, this, this lady had an eye for detail. She, think of her as like an inspector of some sort. She's coming to do a forensic inquiry. Let me check this guy. I mean, his fame is spread throughout the whole world. I'm not happy about the report. I want to come and see. Okay? Um, tell you about a built house. This house must be a... Let me see the house that he, that he built by principles. Then he says, what, what am I also interested in assessing? The food on the... You know, this lady has an eye for everything. Eh? Picture walking. She wants to check the arrangement of the plates, the setting of the table. How is the food presented? Right? She has an eye for detail. The food, and what is food depictive of, by the way? Doctrine, theology, the diet we feed in this house. Not so? Right? Food on his table, the seating of his servant. That for me speaks about a preparedness to engage doctrine, the readiness for the task, the attendance of his waiters, those personnel in the house that facilitate the flow of theology, of doctrine, of, of grace through the word. Amen? We need more waiters in the house. Tell you never, you need to become a waiter. Yeah? And for next year, this I'm speaking seriously. Right? We need more people that will stand alongside and facilitate the process of the serving of food to the nations of the earth. Amen? Amen? So every detail. Um, we have to raise our levels of excellence. Right? Uh, if you're standing at the door to welcome people, be the best door welcomer in the whole world. Right? The way you carry yourself, the engagement with the visitor, welcome. Right? They must leave. They say, never, ever have we met a better door welcomer than that in our whole lives. Right? Wow. We've heard, but we've come to inspect the precision, the levels of excellent placement of people in various stations. Amen? Can we get there? Tell your neighbor we can. Yeah? We can. I can. I want to encourage you. And it says, the attendance of his waiters and their attire. Now, we don't place too much um, emphasis on physical garb. I'm talking spiritually here. How dressed are you in things spiritual? How ready? Remember the Bible says, Ezra was a readied scribe in the law of Moses. Right? Robes of righteousness, garments of praise. Right? How ready are you in terms of your dressedness? His cupbearers, those that serve wine, those that Serve revelation. And I like this. His stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. His house was linked to the house. There was a stairway linking Solomon's house to the temple. I think it's local church connected to city church. What he was doing in his locality 
was not divorced from the corporate will of God happening in the whole nation. Right? Now, we next year, brethren, we, we are part of a process in this regard already. But there is a stairway from this house to the temple in the city. Amen? And we've had frequent gatherings this year. I want to encourage many of you next year to give that process heightened priority. Right? Tell your neighbor, do you have a stairway? Right? That we are corporately minded. We're not locally, not parochial in our view. And we regard everyone as legitimate expressions of the body of Christ. Maybe all at different phases of development, but we're all one body, one church in Christ. Amen? And then the Bible says, I like this. His stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. When she saw the link between the house and the temple, she almost fainted. I like this. I see this last point as the reason why there was no spirit left in her. She almost died. Because if your spirit leaves your body, you're dead. (laughs) Some versions say she almost fainted. But she was like, wow, Solomon. I've heard much about you. I've come to physically inspect. I love your precision. I love your excellence. I love the quality of food, the spiritual food you serve at your tables. I love how your servants have readied themselves. I I love how each one is seated. I love your attending waiters. I love the excellence with which they work. But when I see that your house is connected to a greater reality, (gasps) I can't, this is too much for me. Right? Let me just say this. We'll teach more on the city church next, next year. And the city of the living God, Hebrews 12 says. When the man at the gate, beautiful, was healed by, G, by was it Peter and, and John, went to pray. Remember the ninth hour? They healed the guy. He went walking and leaping and praising God. So Van Gogh, have I now? You know the story. Where was he found? Next verse in the Bible says, and he went and he was found in the temple. I want to encourage you. When God does heal you, heal your finances, heal you of whatever, let your feet be found in a bigger context. I really believe the welfare of the present day global church is going to be determined by how that global church positions itself in a city church context. The city of the living God. Now, and then the Bible says, just quickly the next portion. She said to the king, it was true the report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. She says, wow, it's true. But, what did she say? Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until... I came and my eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not even told to me. I like this. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity and the report which I've heard. Okay, she has the opposite effect. Right? Solomon's uh, uh, state was underrated in the report that she heard. I've heard things, but now that I've come to see, she says the half has not even been told me yet. Right? The half has not even been told me yet. Next verse, quickly. How blessed are you? How blessed are your men? How blessed are these, your servants, who stand before you continually to hear your wisdom? Tell your neighbor you are blessed. Right? 
uh, he says, they say of Solomon, your servants are blessed. She pronounces these things over you. Continue. Blessed be the Lord. And she starts to bless God. I want to encourage you what people see of accurate representations of Christ will initialize and activate praise, worship, and adoration to our God. Again, what we do of the works of God must always lead people to the person of God. Okay? Blessed be the Lord your God who delights in you to set you on the thrones of Israel because the Lord loves Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Next verse. She gave the king, watch, 120 talents of gold, a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices, abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave Solomon. Next verse. Also ships of Hiram, which brought gold from a fire, brought it brought in from a fire a very great number of the almond trees and precious stones. The king made of the almond trees supports for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers, such almond trees that have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. Last verse, verse 13. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. Then she turned and she went to her own land together with her servants. Ethiopia, modern day Ethiopia. She returned back to her land. Took the gospel there of things she saw. I want to encourage us, church, that when people see an accurate representation of, of Christ in a particular context, Every resource will be provided. God has taken my mind off praying for resource. God said to me, just focus on the development of an accurate representation of Christ. When people see that, there's, there's no telling the amount of resource they will part with because they see in it attendant purpose. Right? They see in it attendant purpose. Also this too, while they will be amazed, it will lead them to giving glory to God. Do you know, let me just finish with, with something quickly because of time. I have a long set of notes here. Let me just speak to you prophetically. In the book of Acts, I'll just reference it. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, and verse 14. The Bible says here, Paul comes to um, a particular city. He goes down with his associates to a river. A group of women are there and he preaches the gospel. A woman there named, what is her name? Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. Now, what is purple depicted of? Royalty, kingly, right? Selling purple fabrics implies that a clientele, this was a business woman, a clientele were kings, princes, royalty, right? Thyatira, um, the city of Thyatira, was known for its dying, the dying of fabrics, right? So this woman had a thriving business there. Watch, listen carefully. A, what was she? She was a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God. 
there's no contradiction in between being an extremely successful business person and being a worshiper of God. Right? The two are, are, are quite fine to coexist. But she was what? What was she? She was listening. Please hear me and listen with prophetic ears. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. Look at the next verse quickly. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she was so insistent, she prevailed upon Paul and his team. Long story, this was in, uh, uh, remember Paul here, together with Silas, would go preach in the chapter that follows, and they would land in prison, remember? Paul and Silas in that Philippian, and the Philippian jailer, remember? Right? And uh, great release, and when they would come out, if you read the balance of this chapter, right at the end, they do exploits, and the last verse in this chapter says, and they came back to the house of Lydia. What happened? This woman used her literal house, her influence, and her finance to sustain Paul and his team in this time. I want to say this prophetically to those. Please hear me with the ears of the Spirit. Listen, God says, like he's already seen the Nathaniels, he's seen the Peters that Andrew would call, he's seen the Nathaniels that Philip will access. These are people, according to the prophecy that Sam gave to me, are people of significant worth and substance and weight in the spirit. Some of them are even here right now. You don't even know it. These will be people, sellers of purple fabric. These will be kingdom financiers. But God says, I like the phrasing, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to listen to the things said by Paul. Who opens the heart? The Lord opens the heart. I want to encourage you to be courageous because the people that you will touch, God has already prepared and God has already opened their their hearts. And they will prevail upon us to use their context as a platform or basis from which aspects of ministry will go forth to whole cities. Philippian jailer gets converted. I love this incident. Right? People of significance will get converted through these processes. But the imperative, and the thing I want you to leave with as we go from this place is, you must be able to say these words, come and see. I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll put, don't try to persuade you, but come and behold. But if we say that, then when we must have something to showcase. Right? We must have something to, to put on offer. The food on the table. The seating of servants. The levels of excellence of administration and management. The wisdom that flows forth from the word of God. Queen of Sheba heard. When she saw it, she opened her resource and she gave. She gave lavishly. In return, Solomon endowed her with his bounty, not so, right? Demonstrating the fact we're not inviting you to access your resource because we are sufficiently resourced in Christ to be a blessing to you too. So our motives are very, very clear. Amen? Our motives are clear. So I want to encourage you 
Be a Philip. Be an Andrew. Be a kingdom connector. Go out and become a fisher of men. The exact word that Jesus would say to these apostles. You fished for fish all along, but now I make you a fisher of, of men. Amen. Come, let's stand. Slip your hands to the Lord. Amen. In this Passover, focus. God is calling us. He's asking us a very pertinent question, church. Do we have something to invite people to inspect? Can we say to the outside world, come and see? Start with your own life. Come and see. Come and hear my testimony. Come and see evidence of my transformed lifestyle. Come and see it in me personally and come and see it in our household corporately. Father, we lift up our hands and we ask, like you prepared Nathaniel, like you prepared Peter, like you prepared Lydia. I thank you people of significance are being prepared by your hand even now as we speak. You already see them under their own fig tree, which is a picture of religion. You see them in inaccurate places, yet pure purity of heart, no deceit, no guile. I pray, Father, our Today, we, we look beyond the immediacy of our personal need. We lift up our hands to you to ask you that you would allow us to be kingdom connectors, to connect others of worth. Some of the people will be, even be greater than us in the expressions of exploits in the kingdom. But allow us the privilege of connecting those individuals, of bringing them in to a deeper and more accurate place in you. We ask for our house, our levels of excellence, our levels of precision, of, 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 of management of things, actual and spiritual, Father, will go to the next level. We ask this by your grace. I thank you that when people see, they will glorify you and say, truly God is in their midst. This is our God. God is in their midst. We ask these things not for our own glory. We ask these things that your purposes might prevail. That your will be done in the earth. We pray your blessing would abide upon every single one of us. Before we exit this life, give us the privilege of connecting someone strategic to your purposes. Give us the privilege of luring somebody in that you already, even now, have sufficiently prepared, have seen their hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.